4: Ah, 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 ah. I'm Robert Evans This is Behind the Bastards A podcast that I just started with atonal Yelling, I guess um, Oh boy, we are already behind the eight ball Normally, this I mean, this is a podcast where we talk about bad people The worst people mm. in all of history And the bad mm. things that they do um one of those bad people is me for not knowing how to start my show despite this being my only job. Um to help pull I me out. I
5: don't I don't think that you were bad. Why would you say you were bad? You're a professional.
4: You, Thank you, but it's your job to 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 keep me from spiraling into into You were, you were collapse. great at
5: being unprofessional. You Thank were great you. at it.
4: You know who's great at being professional? Is my guest today, Mr. Miles W. Gray. Uh, uh, hey. See, that's how you that's the kind of atonal shrieking. That, uh, thank that, you for that,
6: having that me. You use to start a podcast. God damn it. Why can't I do it that way? No, you did. Uh, I mean, I, I merely just did my own rendition of w- the sort of so work. You're so much you put more up atonal, for. though. I wouldn't Miles, say
5: that. Miles, does the W in your name stand for winner? He 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 The
6: W in my name?
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah. Miles w, w. Gray. What? Where's W come from? Well, I'm just trying to set you up for success in your future political career. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah. look, we know I'm not going to be, well, yeah. I maybe, I probably eventually would end up as a politician, but first, I, you know, I'm going to be a motivational speaker. Oh, we yeah. We well, talked about you, this the <laughs> Trump that's University episode. into, yeah. Mm hmm. I will first create a fucking, you know, gaggle of mindless stooges uh, and just turn them into my political base. uh, That's very appropriate, Miles, that
4: you're talking about creating a gaggle of mindless stooges, uh, kind of a cult, because we're talking about a cult today, but we're also talking about a school. We're talking about a cult that's a school. Miles,
6: (laughs) how do you feel about kids? Why the oh man, dude! Last time it was so fucking brutal. I okay, yeah. How do I feel about kids? I think kids are our future, and we need to nurture them and protect them at all costs.
4: Now, when you say nurture and protect, does that mean train them to operate an internal police state based on violence and sexual assault in order to control their own behavior and the behavior of their peers? What the fuck did you say? what uh, no. miles we have fun we do have fun um we're not gonna have fun today today's a horrible episode have you ever heard of the elan school no how do you spell it elan
6: like the french word you know elan oh uh, uh, uh like, like, no i feel like it maybe sounds familiar are there ones in la at all Oh, good God, no. No, they're they're, they're not any
4: of these anywhere anymore. Oh, okay. You never know these days. (laughs) This was the kind of school that could only exist in the middle of nowhere, Maine. And if you've never been to Maine, middle of nowhere, Maine is about as middle of nowhere as you get, right? Yeah, I've been up there there for hockey.
6: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in the middle of nowhere, yeah, like that's like for people that are trying to be like, dude, get the fuck away from me.
4: Yeah, and people who don't want uh, too many prying eyes over the school that they're running, because it's uh, actually just a series of horrible crimes. Now, Mm. Miles... A series of horrible crimes. I think we can all agree, kids are... uh, can be problematic, right? You know, their little brains are still developing. Mm -hmm. Uh, All kids are going to do shitty, harmful things to themselves and to other people, because they're just Mm kind of learning how to be functional human beings. Pretty normal process of growing up. You're going to... Say things that hurt your parents. You know, you're probably going to punch your little brother or sister. You're going to do something shitty, right? Yeah. Every kid does. Just part of being a kid. Exactly. Um, and it, it gets, you know, kind of taken up a level when you're a teenager, right? Teens lash out, uh, say horrible things. They they maybe get involved with substances that are that are going to be bad for them. They, they you know, uh, steal a car. Like, kids do dumb shit, right? Yeah. Um, teenagers do. And I think any reasonable person or organization that's trying to, like, take care of teenagers in particular, will acknowledge that like they're going to make mistakes because their brains aren't finished. And so even if those mistakes are pretty serious, right, things that right. might normally land an adult in prison, if it's a child, you have to approach them with a, 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 an added level of compassion and understanding because their brains aren't done yet. Exactly. Um, now, I think reasonable people can admit that some kids have behavioral issues that make them dangerous to themselves and others. I've had to work with some of those kids. Um, I've had colleagues who got their bones broken from some of those kids. There's a necessity for specialists and even special facilities to help kids that have behavioral problems that make them a danger to be around, right? Um, that's just a thing that is going to right. occur and when you've of people in a country. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, Miles, this is the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And when you start with the premise that, yeah, okay, maybe sometimes we need a special facility for oh. troubled kids, you open the door for a whole new industry. And because capitalism is what it is, when you have an industry for taking care of troubled kids, you also have an industry that has a vested financial interest in making sure as many children as possible are placed in those facilities, whether they need the help or not. So, mm-hmm. see where things get off the rails here is when you attach the profit motive yep. to dealing with absolutely a like,
6: problem okay now we need a side business mislabeling mm-hmm. these kids so Mm -hmm. we can turn them into customers.
4: Yeah, we're going to start having to bribe some judges and bribe some healthcare workers to to force more kids into our... Yeah. Um, So the best way, if you're in the business of running a facility for troubled kids, the best way to improve your business is to convince parents, judges, the legal system and the mental health system that a wide variety of behaviors, um, from talking back and smoking weed to getting into fistfights at school, justify incarceration in such facilities. Like the kid I know who got sent to... A facility, and it wasn't one of these facilities because he was there was other stuff going on. But it was a facility where he was in full time residential care. uh He broke his his uh, one of his parents' arms. He broke one of my colleagues' jaws. He gave me a concussion. Like it was like a problem. Wow. Like, the kid needed really dedicated help, right? Yeah, like, it was, yeah, yeah. You you just the, eventually the school was like, we cannot take care of this kid. Right. Um, it's just not.
6: Like, it's not. It's like he just yeah. farts at the wrong time exactly. during class. Like no, this is this is a, we're talking something different.
4: And I want to make it clear when I talk about like, yeah, I think there is a need for special facilities for certain kids. That's the kind of kids like, so, you
6: know, you're, you're fucking stabbing people with like scissors or stuff, Right, I understand. You such, and yeah, And that has nothing to do with <laughs> the thing you were telling about this new business you were opening that was now, like Miles, a facility for... Uh, uh, what we would you think if I was going to tell this? you I could turn a
4: $10,000 investment into $100,000 of profit uh, as <laughs> long as you're able to get two or three judges to just to just shotgun some children my way? See, mm. my idea, Miles, is mm-hmm. what helps improve your character as an adult? Operating a rare earth magnet mineral mine. <laughs> so what if we take troubled children and we force them to mine mm-hmm. in order to produce the materials needed for our cell
6: phones? The Absolutely. industry already works off of slavery. This is slightly better than slavery. Mm-hmm i go, go on now. I, and how much do I need to invest now? I just need to create some compromat for these judges.
4: Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, miles. Well, well, I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll send you the prospectus later. We'll, we'll <laughs> send you the deck money. later. <laughs> but yeah. So the problem with this is right. There's a need for some facility like this, but when it, the profit motives gets attached to it. You have these people who decide who who, like the, there's a vested interest in convincing parents and the legal system that like, no, no kids don't just need to be put in special facilities. If they're a danger to the life and limb of other people, if they're smoking weed, that's dangerous enough. You know, if they Mm -hmm. punched a kid in school one time, that's bad enough. Let's get him in the program. You know, that's, that's how it happens with all of these troubled teen facilities. Now, At the same time, if it's your business to treat kids in this kind of a facility, the reality of capitalism means that your priority is never, ever, not one single solitary time, as a business at least, Mm -hmm. not to say that every individual who works there feels this way, but as a business, your priority is never going to be rehabilitation or education or even basic health and safety. It will always be maximizing profit. And one way to do that is to hire people who will work for less money than such a complicated job should rightly pay. And the people who are willing to to take that pay cut Generally find Other than financial motives For the work Like the opportunity To beat and molest children This is how the troubled teen industry works, right? Uh, this is right. what it's colloquially called troubled teen facilities, the troubled teen industry. And these different facilities, they run the gamut from like wilderness facilities where you're dropping kids in like the, the woods, basically uh, right. ranch style offerings with like working on a farm, military school ty- style things and uh, institutions that are harder to easily quantify, like the Elan School, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now, when she was a teen, Paris Hilton uh, was sent to one such institution called Provo. Canyon. Um which I think was more kind of a, on the wilderness side of things might have been more of a ranch. But Provo mm-hmm. Canyon is in Utah. Um and Utah by the way is like Mecca for schools that can legally abuse children. That's where most cool. of these facilities are. U- Utah makes a lot of money off of uh, systematically abusing children for profit. Um which is why the legal system in Utah is set up to enable these schools. So, perfect. Uh, Paris Hilton Credits Provo Canyon, uh, the school she was sent to as a teen, for, quote, the most vivid and traumatizing memories I've ever experienced in my entire life. One particular memory helped fuel what has become a side career for Paris Hilton in exposing the teen treatment industry. Quote, I continually experience a nightmare where two men come into my room in the middle of the night and kidnapped me. It has caused me severe trauma, and I know it is a tentpole of this industry that has caused millions of survivors to suffer the same nightmares throughout their adult life. Now, that experience that she had of, of people coming into her their house in the middle of the night and kidnapping her, um, that's really common. It happens to conservatively tens of thousands of kids a year. Some numbers are 50,000. Not all of them get kidnapped, but a lot of them do. That's the standard, right? Because you decide as a parent, I'm going to send my kid to this horrible facility where they'll be isolated and like abused until they stop misbehaving. Well, I don't want to like sit down and say because i caught you with weed i'm sending you to the woods right so how do you avoid that awkward conversation you hire men to abduct your child in the Snatch dead of him up in the night yeah <laughs> absolutely him up in the
6: night <laughs> because you're already such a good parent i mean i'm mm-hmm. guessing in the cases for kids who are just, just normal just nailing them <laughs> yeah like yeah. for the normal trouble teens not sort of people yeah. who actually need it like you're saying a special care facility but like let's but I, say just yeah. a kid who's smoking weed they're like that's yeah. it mm-hmm. we're having people disappear him in the middle of the night because we yeah. as parents aren't willing to have a conversation at all that will go through all these lengths to just avoid any form of being an adult in this situation yeah. like holy shit yeah
4: it's it's outrageous and, hor- and and it's just horrific um and yeah so and there's there's companies that the, the service the company provides is like they'll send a handful of psychopaths to kidnap your child and like handcuff them or tie them up and throw them in the back of a van and drive so them it's across like the another country.
6: like industry yeah, it's where whole they're
4: whole- like. Hey, some schools have dedicated guys, but yes, there's companies that just snatch kids for profit and their parents. It's it's very legal. You're like as the parent, you sign away permission for this. Um, So if they get pulled over by the cops, they can say, no, 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 we're
6: not abducting this. We are abducting this child. But the parents said, okay. oh, no, here's the permission slip. Here's my badge. I'm a licensed child snatcher. No. So, yeah, (laughs) I'm a professional child abductor officer. What? Um, Like, and that's terrible bar chat, too when you meet somebody yeah. like asking what do you them do what for they a, do. a living
4: oh, oh, I me? Duck yeah. children and the dead. There's actually a kid tied up in the back of my van right now.
6: Yeah. He's good. I host We're him off so in bit. the front seat though. Oh, that, that, that's okay. <laughs> I, I was, I just need to take your order.
4: <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, it is a crime, thankfully, in 20 states to send children to gay conversion therapy, but it is perfectly legal to send your child to a treatment center, center for anything else a parent regards as a flaw. So gay conversion therapy is illegal in a bunch of states. It's not right. illegal really anywhere to send your child to a treatment center. And the treatment center doesn't have to be for like an actual problem that like, a, a I don't know, a psychiatrist or someone said like, oh, yeah, this kid has this serious problem that needs Special treatment. Anything you're not happy with that your kid does counts, right? Mm. Because as a parent, you're the dictator of your child because children have no rights. Yeah. Like effectively, yeah. not if the parent like wants to do parents can do a lot of fucked up shit to their kids perfectly legally. Yeah. And there's right. a lot of people who will fight in Congress for their right to abuse their children systematically because uh, this nation was, I don't know, a large chunk of the population of this country believes that parents are the biblical sovereigns of their children and should be able to do anything they want to them. Right. Um, it's good shit. Uh, now, as a parent, you have the power to sign over physical control of your child to an organization. One of these teen treat, Facilities and every year, parents of around 50,000 kids do so. Mm. If you listen to our two-parter on Synanon with American hero Paul F. Tompkins, you know that the <laughs> troubled teen industry got its start with that particular cult. Um, have you? Did you listen to those episodes, Miles? No, I haven't heard that one. Synanon was a. This will be useful for people who haven't listened to it yet. Although it's a pretty good two-parter. Synanon was a drug, the first drug rehab program, like in the nation, like focused on like dope as opposed to alcohol, and it was kind right. of based
6: initially off Alcoholics Anonymous, like snowball, sin, like sinning, S Y N. Oh, uh yeah okay I thought it was like super christian like for sinner sinning no, anonymous
4: it it wasn't and it was yeah. it was founded by this guy Charles dederick who was um an alcoholic and not a drug addict himself. And he was, he became a cult leader. This, this thing went from like people kind of living together in this compound and like doing hard labor. And, um, you know, they had all these different things that they thought would help keep you off drugs. One of them was called the game, which was this therapeutic tool invented by Charles Dedrick, where everyone would sit around in a room, all these addicts, and they would scream abuse at each other. They would just like insult each other, talk about what they hated about each other. And it was this, the idea was that like, Oh, addicts need extra accountability because they're so good at lying. So you you have this, you know, you, this regular thing where you get to, like, you get abused for, for like, the shitty things off. that you do. Yeah. And fuck? it's a way to blow off steam, too. Yeah, right. Um, it, it, it was, Synanon was hugely popular for a while. Um, judges were so enthusiastic about the practice that they started sending children who'd been caught with dope to Synanon. Um And because these kids, most of the people who can't went to Synanon and got involved, like, wanted help, like, were addicts. But these kids didn't like it generally weren't serious addicts, but also didn't want to be there. Right. So they had to develop these really brutal rules for like punishing them and cracking down and stopping them from escaping and keeping them in line. Um, and it became physically abusive too, uh, and mentally abusive, obviously. Um, but that was not why Synanon got in trouble, right? Synanon eventually got in trouble because they tried to assassinate a lawyer with a rattlesnake after building their own army in California. Um,
6: Oh, that it's, one. It's yeah. quite a
4: story miles. Oh, but
6: <laughs> (laughs) I mean, Uh, so passe that mm -hmm. assassinating a lawyer with the arm. I mean, come on. (laughs)
4: So Synodon is where the troubled teen industry gets its start, right? This is the first time that judges are like, oh we don't have to just throw these kids in prison, which is admittedly the wrong thing to do with a kid who you've caught with weed or something. But instead they're like, we just hand them over to this weird cult and the cult will abuse them until they don't smoke pot anymore. And this will solve our problems forever. Okay. Um,
6: Just freak the fuck out of them.
4: Yeah. Uh, by the early 60s, Synanon was a bona fide phenomenon, and they inspired a dizzying variety of imitators who used variations of their methods. One of these imitators was the Daytop Village in New York, which is actually the second ever drug rehab program in the United States. Uh, it was created in 1963, just five years after Synanon started. Um, and the Daytop Village followed a what they called a therapeutic community style of treatment, um, which is where the actual work of rehabilitation is done by other addicts counseling and holding each other uh, accountable. This is the same thing Synanon did, and part of what they mean by that is again, you all sit in a room together and yell abuse at each other. Um, mm. Some people said this helps, but I've never gone, I've never been addicted to heroin. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it helps. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you um, know, don't
6: knock it till you try it, I guess. Yeah,
4: um, and it's worth noting. Daytop Village has not been accused of the same kind of abuse as Synanon, and they never tried to build their own Marine Corps or assassinate a lawyer with a rattlesnake. Rattlesnake, so,
6: obviously, right. A lot
4: of problematic things about Daytop. They didn't go as over the the goddamn top, as uh, a synonym, did. For our purposes, Daytop Village in New York is noteworthy because in the late 1960s, a troubled 18-year-old named Joe Ritchie was sent there. Joe would go on to create the Elan School, which might be the most abusive troubled teen institution to ever exist. But to properly tell that story, we've got to go back in time again and give Joe's backstory. So I had to talk about where the troubled teen industry starts. Let's talk about Joe a little bit. Okay, here. he was born in Port Chester, New York, in 1945. To parents who were deeply troubled They split up and we don't know why But a hint as to why may come from the fact That his father Frank was nicknamed Bamboo Because he was so good at Bouncing back after getting punched in the face During the near constant bar fights he had At local bars oh like, His nickname in town was Bamboo like that guy could get, get Wow he's really good at getting the shit punched out of him
5: oh, What the
4: fuck is Bamboo Bamboo they shit. called him Bamboo Because he's so, so good at getting funny. punched
6: And what do you, I mean that's uh, a weird fo- Those The vibe of those people who just take shots, like, and are like kind of sad and like bar fight immortals. Yeah, Yeah. I can't imagine. The energy swirling yeah. around that kind of person.
4: I, I'm not surprised his marriage didn't last.
6: <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, um, yeah, I don't even know how to respond to physical stimulus, yeah. no less verbal to <laughs> yeah. adjust any kind of a great emotions guy. Uh, he was a day laborer
4: uh, and known locally as, quote, a kingpin of bar fights. Um, he was violent, but also charming, which is probably how he snared Ann Santoro, Joe Ritchie's mother. Now, the Santoros and the Ritchies were both... both... Both Italian-American families, but the Santoro family hated the Ritchie family because the Ritchie family was newer to the country and didn't speak English very well. Mm -hmm. Um, When Anne and Frank split up, she signed over custody of her son, Joe, to her parents, Michael and Angela. And Joe was raised by his maternal grandparents and several other relatives. Um, So... From the beginning, this kid doesn't have, you know, his mom, when she splits up with his husband, like, signs over custody to his grandparents, which is kind of an odd move as well. Um, But this is also a period in which single motherhood is really, in some cases, like, even legally penalized. So, like... I, mm. I guess it makes a degree of sense as to why this happened. Um, the Santoro family, uh, where Joe was raised, was they, they were poor but proud, and they regularly attended mass at the Holy Rosary Church. As a young child, Joe was an altar boy. He spent time at the community center where he learned to box and play basketball. One of his friends at the time, Vic Donato, remembered him this way. We called him Joe Rich. He was a good guy, but I've never seen anyone as wild. Joe was really tough. If you were nice to him, he'd be your friend. But you didn't want to mess with him. He was always looking over his shoulder, and if you did something to cross him, he'd never let you forget it. Joe Rich was sharp, knew how to survive. I used to think he had nine lives. If he did something really wrong, he'd get out of it. Someone else would take the heat. He always had himself covered. It seems Joe Rich knew where to go. He was definitely ahead of his time. When we were involved in basketball games, he was thinking about stealing cars. I really figured he'd eventually be successful, either that or dead. Wow, that's a wild thing to say. So about he's your also own got print. little yeah.
6: bamboo DNA too mm-hmm. to him. Uh, with Mm -hmm. the nine lives i just like when you first said it's like while we were playing basketball i thought you were saying like he was like he he, like in the middle of the basketball game he's like checked out he's like Mm -hmm. how are we gonna steal these cars and then he gets hit in the head the basketball i think that's what he's saying come on sorry man you think about stealing cars again fuck dude we're gonna lose Uh, yeah 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 sorry
4: uh now miles you know who else likes to steal cars uh these advertisers Hmm. Yep. Uh, we are entirely sponsored by a ring of car thieves and shop, chop shops. Oh, so great. if you're looking for a nice new stolen car. Check, check out, out one of these sponsors, hey, yeah. If you're
6: looking for that
4: catalytic converter that I took out, <laughs> yeah. check out uh, one of these ads. <laughs> I mean, look, we're podcast hosts, so when we're, we're not recording, we're both actively out and about
6: stealing the catalytic converters. Oh, from just Toyota like Joe Priuses. Ritchie. When, yeah. Well, some people are thinking about podcasts. All you and I are thinking about is how we're getting more catalytic converters out of Hondas.
4: Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 my whole life,
6: man. Uh, <laughs> You should have seen me, man. It was the it was the twenties. I was podcasting,
4: stealing
3: catalytic convert converters out of Japanese I had a whole coat
4: made out of catalytic converters. <laughs> I walked down the street. People said, "Oh, that's the Cat King of Portland."
6: <laughs> there he is, Cat Man. Oh, uh,
4: here's some ads. ah we're back and we're thinking about stealing catalytic converters Mm -hmm. the new business for... It's the new Furby. Yeah, it's the new Furby. Look, <laughs> the economy's heading for another downturn. Can you afford not to learn how to steal catalytic converters? That's no, all I want I'm asking. You know. Siphoning, siphoning I want gas, know. catalytic converters. Oh, yeah. You gotta know how to siphon. Now, the good thing about siphoning is the sucking skills that you use while siphoning are useful in a variety of other endeavors. Absolutely. Especially other quasi-legal endeavors you're gonna have to engage in to make a living when the economy collapses. <laughs>
6: Which is unclogging <laughs> toilets with a hose? I don't know what that's you were right. thinking, folks. Get your minds that's out of the right. gutter. Come on, don't be filthy. You, you, you. Don't you be animals. filthy. Picture <laughs> someone sucking shit through a hose <laughs> from a toilet. <laughs> Where have we gone? Why did you have me back, Oh <laughs> uh, Miles? Because we got to talk about some really profound childhood Oh, uh, That's right. I see. Mm-hmm. I always do this. I'm like, yeah, let's have a little bit of a good time. And you're like, wait, wait, yeah. wait, 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 yep. wait. Now, remember this? <laughs> no, show? No, I had
4: you on once to talk about the Trump University, and after that, it's just been bleaker and yeah. bleaker <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know i like mm-hmm. it i like yeah it. That's good. So Joe Ritchie is one of the kinds of guys we deal with from time to time on this show. He's famous enough that we have pretty good texture on his early life, but he's obscure enough that there's also a lot of unanswered questions because like you're talking about a guy like Hitler, there's like a bunch of really good biographers who have all Mm -hmm. covered his childhood. and you can get different. You can find the answer to pretty much every factual question about his early life. in one of those books, if you read enough biography, we only have one biography of Joe Ritchie and pretty much all of my info about his early life life comes from the book Duck in a Raincoat by Mara Curley, and I think Mm. it's a very good book, but there are moments like the one I'm about to quote where you know there's a deeper story lurking. Quote, Donato said Richie dated his social science teacher in junior high, a tall, dark-haired beauty just out of college. Now, that sounds like statutory rape to me, (laughs) right? What the fuck? Junior high? Yeah, yeah, and his friends just like, oh yeah, he was dating one of the teachers, and it's like, a 13 like it, year
6: old is with a someone who's maybe 14 but yeah that's thirteen, right. fourteen, and 22 yeah. at least. like that's yeah, the youngest least. she could be is 22 oh, and is that's like Doogie
4: Hauser still and it's like yes oh, if no, Doogie Howser was 15. fucking him I guess it's fine
6: Um, but I right. don't think that was the case Jesus <laughs> and that's it it's just merely like hey he was real yeah. cool he was, he was also fucking teacher. a teacher
4: when he was like 14 yeah no that's how what it's was going just on dropped I don't
6: know I don't know. Did yeah. he have a lot of weird abandonment issues because of the thing with I, his mom and older women? I don't know. I mean, we could talk about it, that, but it I seems don't know. Like one of the,
4: and it seems like his friends, it was one of the stereotypic things. With, well, she's hot. It's cool, right? Like, I think yeah. that's the attitude the other kids had about it. Um, obviously, this is rape, even if it is something that he went to his grave thinking was, like, fine. Um, yeah. Like, it's that doesn't make it. That's why it's statutory rape. That's what that is. Um, now, hearing that, hearing that he had this, like, relationship with a teacher much older than him that he thought nothing, it apparently didn't think anything about. I can't help but wonder if like, well, he's an altar boy too. Did anything like, yeah, you know, yeah. like you can't uh. not, consider that given the prevalence of abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, And I actually did look up a comprehensive report on sexual assault allegations against priests in the Archdiocese of New York. It's 125 pages because fuck the Catholic Church. Um, And while there are four molester priests who were stationed in Port Chester, where Joe lived, the earliest left in 1944, and the others didn't start doing their thing until the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s. So there's not even circumstantial evidence to suggest anything happened about this. Um, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to let you guys know I did look into it because I wanted to see Um, who knows Whatever the truth, Joe grew up into a troubled adolescent. He skipped school constantly. He and his friends would regularly steal pies from a neighbor for pie fights, which is an adorable sort of child crime, what right? The, wait, that's, what are, Like that's, down the
6: sill cooling?
4: Yeah, I, that's how it sounds, right? It sounds like some Andy Griffith level. It sounds like the kind of yeah. crime you'd
6: send Barty Fife out to deal with. Right, it. exactly. It's a like stealing
4: a, pies, Barn!
6: What's that guy? Uh, like a Norman Rockwell painting of mm. like, you know, future cult yeah. leaders stealing pies? for pie fights. as a kid. Unfortunately, it didn't stay cool. Cute.
4: When he was 15, Joe went joyriding with some of his friends. You have to assume they were drunk, but we're not we don't know that Sure, um, they crashed and he was flung from the car seatbelts were just a fever dream in 1960 and he spent months in the hospital and then more months in physical therapy. He had to learn how to walk again. Like, wow. <laughs> which is like, that's like a level of injury. Severity is like, you have to relearn how to walk. Like, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's a yeah, bad you, accident.
6: I got scrambled yeah. a little bit. Yeah, off of
4: that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got, I got a little bit. Yeah. Scrambled is a good word for it. So, Some of Joe's family later told Mara Curley that this accident was a negative turning point in his life, uh, possibly because he was given a lot of drugs while he was recovering and he got addicted to the drugs. Um, There's debate over this. That would make sense, right? A lot of people's painkiller addiction starts because they are in some sort of horrible accident Mm -hmm. where they get painkillers. Now, about a year after he got out of the hospital, his family sent him to a residential treatment facility for difficult boys called PINS or Persons in Need of Treatment. So. So, and again, we don't have, a, we don't have as much texture about why, as I would like to have, but it seems like right. he recovers from this and his parents decide he needs to go to a facility. And it may have been just because like, oh, he's been joyriding. He was like stealing cars or whatever with his friends. They were joyriding. This is clearly a problem. Once he recovers, let's send him to a treatment facility. That may have <laughs> as been soon
6: As soon as he recovers from a horrific yeah. car wreck that <laughs> yeah. rendered him unable to walk, that he had to relearn again, then let's just send him away. Then yeah. let's send him away.
4: Which, questionable parenting I would say um, well, at that point are his parents? you're saying his parents
6: are his maternal well, grandparents his, parents are, are, are his grandparents just okay. yeah yes. yes. so not making sure parents, I'm following yeah. along yeah yeah
4: but they're, they're the ones who raise him right um, so he stays in this treatment facility for two years and then returns to high school in 1963 where he stayed until he left without graduating in 1966 at age 21. So he's in high school at age 21, which sounds like a nightmare. Holy
6: shit. What? Which also
4: shouldn't be allowed. Wait, what's the. (laughs) What's the. Whoa, how how does the time work? He was fifteen when he got in the car wreck. Yeah, fifteen, and then he's like seventeen or eighteen when he gets back from the treatment program, and then he stays in high school for three more years.
6: Oh, so he was like starting sophomore year at like eighteen or something.
4: I think so. He I think got, he
6: like he. What a that's a weird vibe. To, yeah, that's a, a weird year old in vibe, especially
4: since at fourteen he's fucking a teacher, and then at twenty one he's still in the
6: school. Yeah. Like, It's real, real. He's like hungover, and then they're like, well, what, it's not illegal. And now you're like, this oh, is you're right. this
4: is a school in the '60s, so I have to assume all of the kids were drunk 100 percent of the time. Right, right. As um, were the teachers. As were the teachers. God willing, um, and everyone was chain smoking, so it's less weird than it would be today. Right. Now the same year, <laughs> the 1966, when he leaves high school, so he leaves. He doesn't leave high school because he's like, I'm done with school. He leaves because he hijacks a mail truck, um, <laughs> or at least tries to rob it. The details around the crime are a little bit uncertain, but as best as I can determine, it seems like he and his lawyer decided to claim that he'd done it because he was a heroin addict and was desperate for money. Some sources, some of his friends, well, some of, sorry, not his friends, some sources, like usually when you find his life reported on in articles, they'll say he was a heroin addict and that's why he robs this mail truck and gets sent to the facility he's sent to. That's not what Mara Curley, his only biographer, thinks and that because and she doesn't think that because people she talked to who were friends of Joe Ritchie's during this period of time don't think he was a heroin addict. Like he did a little bit of heroin, but he wasn't like right. a hardcore addict. He wasn't like he was robbing shit, but he wasn't robbing shit because his heroin addiction was so bad. Right, That's right, right. What some of his friends it's will he
6: say. he liked the thrill of the robbery, yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. He wanted shit. Um I don't know. I didn't know the guy. Um but this was a really good time in American history to try to, to to go to a judge and say, hey, I did it because I'm a drug addict and I need to go to a treatment facility rather than prison. Because as we just talked about, Synanon was at the peak of its fame in the late sixties. And so it had just become popular for judges to send people to programs like this rather than sending them to prison.
6: Straight to jail. It's funny how we went first, like full circle of being like, yeah. And like, we want to have some little bit of compassion, even though it's Mm -hmm. tied to some really fucked up organization to mass incarceration. The people again be like, yeah, let's do some rehabilitation before incarceration again. Okay. Okay. We're back there again Ish. yeah
4: so it's not the wrong thing from the judge's point of view i guess it's also no. possible well, that mean, he lied about the addiction because it's a lot better to go to one of these facilities than fuck right now whatever the truth joe goes to the Daytop village in new york and he thrives there um he's really good at the game these sessions that he participates in with other addicts where you're like telling each other about your faults and flaws and stuff he's really good he, He's very like, good at it. Yeah. Like there's like a rankings. It's like, have you seen Joe in the game? It's a social thing. So everyone mm. is supposed to take turns kind of picking an individual and like talking about the things they don't like about that person. That's that's like kind of how it goes. Some people are good at directing those sort of group conversations they're good at controlling them they're good at getting other people to gang up on someone they're good at avoiding being the focus of negative attention themselves and this is a thing that's been observed by psychologists and stuff about um sociopaths in particular are very good at group therapy like they they're hmm. good they're they're good at manipulating people. It's what they do. Right. Um, and so they know how to take advantage of these places. And kind of one of the dangers, and this is we talked about this in the Synanon episode. And I found a study on this. It's been noted that a number of cults have come out of different Alcoholics Anonymous groups. And this is not like me shitting on AA. I, I know people no, no, who, right. who swear by it. But it's a problem that has been noted with AA is that sometimes these these kind of group therapy sessions, individuals within them gain a level of mental control over other people in them and they turn into cults. It's happened a handful of times.
6: That's how Synanon started. Oh, right. Um, so it's like it's the, the the material for star mo- formation is mm-hmm. present at a, a exactly. cult formation is present and if with the right ingredients it may lead a- yeah, it and the right, lead it, it, can, it can
4: happen which is yeah, it, it's more it. this is again less of a flaw in AA and more of just like this is how right. people work AA right. this is one of the things they're vulnerable to because of the you know other other things like churches are vulnerable to this thing too right it's not right. we're exactly. not shitting on AA here but it's a known quantity in these kinds of organizations and Joe is very good at the, that's what I mean when I say that he was good at the game, he's right, good at right, at right, Manipulating people in this way.
6: I was being stupid um, and acting as if they were like the game all stars. Or <laughs> they something, like, and they're like, Joe Richie is right, killing it. Can, he brought up his, you know, his paternal <laughs> abandonment issues. It's fantastic. He's like, I don't know. Uh, I do kind
4: of now want like football announcers like covering group <laughs> therapy. <laughs> like,
6: oh, we just talked about the fact that his dad used to hit him. Oh, he went there. He went there. You didn't think he was going <laughs> to. <laughs> go there this early on and I think uh, he's going to counter with something about his mother's inability to say that oh, he, yeah. she loved him. Yep, okay. Yep, oh my there. god, he just brought up the time he left the gate open and the dog got out and was hit by a car. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, there, she's bringing out pictures of the sister. She's bringing out pictures of the sister. We have not seen this in a long time. Richie oh, usually Netflix doesn't use props. just emailed
4: me. Um, they're giving us $42 million to make this show. Great, an um, algorithm just deemed
6: it so. Thank you, Netflix yeah, algorithm. Yeah.
4: So, um, yeah, I guess this is what we're, uh, this is, uh, Sophie, let's uh, cancel the show for the day. Um, yeah, Great.
6: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that eventually they're going to be like, this is what we're thinking, Robert. Mm -hmm. We're we're noticing how big Pokemon is and Mm -hmm. how big your podcast is. What about behind the bastards, Mon, where it's you (laughs) got to catch them all. okay? and it's this anime series and it's a little bit of everything. Huh? How do do we think about that? Huh? Sold. yeah, the algorithm says it's going to be a fucking hit. I mean, look. I'll do anything for Wonderful. enough money
4: to buy an armored vehicle. Yeah. Now there you go. Miles. There's new merch for you. Got just all your yeah. bastard mon. Yeah. Got to catch right. them
5: all. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Got to catch all of the <laughs> route clearance vehicles. Um, <laughs> so he's really good. He goes to daytop. He's really good at the game. He learns. He starts. This is really when he learns, like that he has a gift for actually kind of like manipulating people. And and at first he he's doing it in such a way that he's trying to like. I think I don't know I don't know how much he sees it this way but other people see it as like he's helping them deal with their addiction issues, right? Like, they don't see it as like, oh, he's doing cult leadership. They see it as like, oh, this kid is right. charismatic and understands people and is good at getting them to see their own flaws and their faults and like help them work through and process their addiction. Right. right. Um, so he he gets a lot of praise within Daytop and pretty soon he becomes like their most prominent member. Uh, he's giving speeches and raising funds for the organization and becomes their number one fundraiser. So he's like going outside of the group to like raise money for them and other and to talk about like how good they are at, like, stopping people from being addicted and stuff. Right. Um, and he later recalled that previously, quote, I'd done the therapy bit, but this blew my mind. In other words, he'd done therapy before, but therapy didn't give him the chance to, like, manipulate a bunch of people. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. really likes manipulating a bunch right. of people. Yeah.
6: <laughs> it's but, like an all-you-can-manipulate buffet in there. I can't believe it. That's
4: exactly <laughs> the case. So, he's happy at Daytop. This is an influential moment for him, but he doesn't agree with all of their therapy. For one thing, they all had to shave their heads, which was something that sent and on did, and he thought that was weird. He also butted heads with the administrators when they told him he wasn't ready to graduate, and eventually he ran away from the program. I think they wanted to keep him there because he was so good at raising money, right? Right. Like, Yeah, why would you Mm. wanna give that guy up? (laughs) Now, at the time, like right around when he runs away from Daytop, he starts dating a woman named Sherry in New York. Now Sherry was working at a travel agency and she fell for Joe in part because she was that her parents were alcoholics and he understood the issues she faced as a child of alcoholics. Mm. He understands abuse, or not abuse, but drug abuse really well, right? He's just Mm. been counseling people. He's actually able to like talk with, like obviously that's a thing that would like draw you to someone. You have this horrible experience, he understands it. Makes right. sense why they why they get together. Uh, when Richie left Daytop, he moves right in with Sherry and her roommate. And at first, she says things were great. He cleaned the house. He would bring her little, little gifts. He successfully wooed her so well that she canceled her plans to move to New York City and train as a stewardess. The two were engaged to be married. But early on, there were unsettling signs about the man uh, that he might really be. Quote, uh, and this is from Duck in a Raincoat. Richie sued Sherry's insurance company for injuries he said he sustained during a minor traffic accident. Sherry had run a stoplight and hadn't thought he was more e- and hadn't thought he was even injured. But her insurance company settled the claim. Richie used the money to buy her an engagement ring. So he shoes her insurance company in order to get money to buy her a ring. Oh
6: my which god. Is- <laughs> Wow This uh, guy Yeah This this is some 4D scumbag shit mm-hmm. For sure
4: That's kind of a sign Oh this guy might be A little bit That's that's a little slimy
6: <laughs> Yeah But hey The ring's beautiful
4: I mean it's a, It's an insurance beautiful. company Right If that is the only I wouldn't judge a guy For that necessarily Cause like yeah I get whatever money No you no can But the thinking involved Is clearly that someone's yeah. like
6: <laughs> I find ways to extract things With very yeah, little exactly. effort And I don't care How underhanded it is
4: Yeah That's what this says about him Now Sherry seems to have been fined about this, um, but this bit of insurance fraud would prove to be the beginning of a fairly long career in insurance fraud. The two were married in December of 1969. They were both 24. Richie needed a job, and since his only real-life experience was either crimes or manipulating institutions, he decided to get a job working at the kind of place he'd been sent as a kid. He heard about a pilot program being launched for drug addicts in Connecticut. It was called DARTEC, and it was one of the first programs to include both medical professionals and former addicts Working side by side to counsel people, which seemed like a much better idea than the synanon method of addicts mentally abusing other addicts to keep them sober. The founder of the program, Dr. Donald Pett, hired Joe Ritchie after a phone interview because he seemed persuasive. Joe had a very unusual way of getting many of the street people to follow him. He often got people to rally around him, kind of see things his way, do his bidding. Again, Mm. some cult leader shit, you know? Wow, the street people, is that what they said? Yeah, yeah, they're talking about homeless people there. (laughs) Now, one of the other staff members at Dartech introduced Richie to a Massachusetts psychiatrist named Gerald Davidson. The two weren't coworkers long before Richie and Sherry moved again to another job at a drug counseling center called Survival Inc., but Joe clearly made an impact on Dr. Davidson, uh, one that was out of step with his actual skill in treating addiction. Evidence for this is that Joe brought three doctors tech staff members with him to Survival Inc., and all three of them were fired soon after because they were caught using drugs while working as drug abuse counselors. Wow, so he may not be good at anything but manipulating people in reality. Yeah. Um, Now, Joe is the one who fired them, and he made a statement to the press saying their behavior was unacceptable, and it seems like the incident had an impact on him. Not long after that, in 1971, the couple decided to open a therapeutic community of their own. Joe reached out to Dr. Davidson, who he'd worked with briefly, and because he was a smooth son of a bitch, convinced the older man to be their business partner in starting a new facility, because Dr. (laughs) Davidson is a psychiatrist and he has money, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. You gotta love it. Uh, and you got a license probably too, right? Yeah, he's got some licenses. There's a lot of reasons it's a good call. Now, Miles, you know what's an even better call than convincing a psychiatrist to fund your child abuse company
6: program uh uh, this seminar we're given on how to unload catalytic converters on craigslist using ambiguous (laughs) language
4: that's right uh and pick up miles and i's new book the catalytic converter driven life which is all about how
6: stealing (laughs) catalytic converters (laughs) called (laughs) welcome converts (laughs) (laughs)
4: Uh,
6: what a good cult
4: this is gonna be
8: Let's go places.
4: We're back. Oh, I'm just fondling a couple of cats and uh, catalytic converters. That is, um, <laughs> that's what we call it around here. That's, that's what we call it around here in the, in the, in the verter biz. Um, So, by 1971, which is when Joe decides to start his own facility, Synanon was a full-on cult, but public awareness of that fact was not high. People were aware that drug abuse rehabilitation centers could save addicts, and such facilities had exploded in popularity. Now, at the time, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts all had very stringent laws about what kind of professional qualifications you had to have to work in such a place, right? Those states have like you consider it basically a hospital. If you're trying, if you're saying I want to open a residential treatment facility for addicts, you have to like have medical, serious medical credentials in order to work. What
6: there. if I just really want to do it? How well, about then that? You move to Maine. <laughs>
4: oh, <laughs> then you God. do what Joe, Joe Richie and Sarah uh, and Sherry do, which is you move to Maine because Maine does not give a fuck about anything. Now, mm. At the beginning, the program was owned by Dr. Davidson and another man, David Goldberg, who actually had the money necessary to start the business. The Richies used their money to lease a former summer camp in Naples, Maine, which they turned into their facility. From the beginning, Dr. Davidson's role in all of this was to be a doctor, right? Not to actually do medicine, but to be a doctor who was professionally associated with the organization. so right. he could put his name on advertising material and they can use it to claim that their facility has a basis Clinical Therapy. And since Dr. Davidson was the associate director of the drug clinic at Boston City Hospital, he had a lot of professional weight to throw around. But again, he's never there. He's not actually mm-hmm. doing anything. <laughs> it's he, He's giving money. He's like right. funding this, but like, yeah. So from the start, it was agreed that Dr. Davidson would not work on site. He would stay in Massachusetts working at a hospital and using his position as a psychiatrist to refer patients to the new business he'd started which is not at all a conflict. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, it's yep, there fucking it is.
6: rad. Oh, all American. it's so good. So good. Oh, oh yeah. God. You need, a, you need some help. You know, actually I know this place actually. Oh yeah. It. It's a, uh, it's out in
4: Maine, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. it's run by this guy who has no qualifications (laughs) other than being a guy. But hey, Um, he
6: really wants to do it. He really really, wants to do it. Yeah, he's he's motivated. He's got heart. No expertise, Mm -hmm. though. All heart. No expertise.
4: (laughs) So Richie and his wife were supervisors uh, working for free room and board and a cut of the profits. Uh, But when one of their other partners, a guy who invested with a doctor, was caught embezzling, Richie and his wife bought their way into a full partnership by selling $8,000 worth of stocks that Sherry had inherited from her grandma. So Mm. Richie becomes a partner because of money that his wife has, right? Um... Now, the early years of this business are hard. The Richies were very poor. And by all accounts, Joe was obsessed with getting rich. From the beginning, the Alon School, as they came to call it, was not about helping people. It was about making Joe Ritchie a fortune. Still, it does seem to have started as, I don't know, somewhat genuine. It doesn't seem to have initially been horribly toxic, at least within the standards of the industry. And I'm going to quote mm. from Duck in a Raincoat again. They lived on the top floor of the rustic building in Naples with residents on the second floor. Everybody shared the ground level. They seldom had any private time, never went out to eat or to the movies. Every activity centered around the therapeutic community and making lots of money. Sherry said her husband would often lie awake in bed thinking aloud about how they were going to make their first $100,000. Becoming rich was definitely an obsession that seemed to drive Joe, recalled an early staff member at Elan. Money was extremely important to him and when he was earning $10,000 a year and driving an old Oldsmobile. It represented the power to be somebody important who would be accepted by everyone around him, and that meant a lot. So Mm. from the beginning, his motivation here is to get rich off this, not necessarily to determine any new method of actually helping people.
6: Right, right. And if even if it wasn't toxic at first, it seems like he probably felt some kind of momentum beginning with his ability to grift and manipulate.
4: Yeah. And and when I say I don't know that it was toxic at first because we don't have a lot of detail about the early times of the school now. From the at the beginning, most of the money that they made was put right back into the business, but it gradually started to make a major profit uh, because they started drawing in and Joe would actually go out and like recruit, People to join the facility, particularly troubled teens from wealthy families. Um, so they would like Joe and Dr. Davidson would go out and like talk to rich parents whose kids had like were in legal trouble, had like serious problems with addiction. Like, because Davidson is a psychiatrist, he knows which rich parents have are paying able to pay for serious oh, help for their right. kids. Jesus. And Joe will go out and like, because Joe's good at convincing people of things, will convince them to send their kid over to Elan and pay $1,200 a month for treatment in 1970s money. You know, that's a lot of cash. Yeah. Um, so the Naples facility relocated to the former Potter Academy, uh, a landmark in the town of Sabago, and another secondary site was, site was established in Waterford, Maine. So they expand very quickly because going after rich kids is good business. Throughout the mid-1970s, Joe Ritchie expanded his methods from, you know, he started off just kind of ripping off the daytop school in Synod on um, right. to, to building something new. And this happens gradually. We don't know the exact time frame in which this occurs, but it happens, you know, in, in the early years of the facility um so initially all the therapy, you have these group talk sessions based off the game. You have various forms of labor. People are asked to like do physical labor outdoors as part of like their, their kind of like a punishment in a lot of cases. Um, and Richie designed uh, Alon's culture around a series of work crews. Each member started as a worker and was assigned a job in the kitchen, the business office, the communications office, or on the grounds based on what was considered to be their weakest area. So you get a job doing grunt level labor. And whatever thing you're worst at. Uh, in a 1979 article for Corrections magazine, Dr. Davidson claimed this was, quote, "...to teach them to function under adversity and learn to accept failure." Now, from Mm. worker, which everyone starts as a worker, you move up to ramrod or foreman, uh, which is like, you know, in charge of a small group of workers. After that, you move up to department head and then up to coordinator. Joe felt that structure and communal living were both necessary in order to treat addicts. But while he was experimenting with new ways to counsel drug addiction, he was also experimenting with insurance fraud. So, in January of 1974, a fire destroyed his academy at Subago. Thankfully, no one was there at the time. Davidson and Richie were in Chicago recruiting residents. The building's owner told the press that he didn't have much insurance, but Richie bragged that the Elan School itself was, quote, adequately insured due to the extensive remodeling his residents had done to the building. Now, there was no evidence that his residents had remodeled anything because the building had burned down, but he was able to successfully argue that this increased the insurance value of the. Property uh, and he makes a lot of money off of the insurance uh, yeah. this building that gets conveniently
6: burned uh,
3: down. Yeah, don't worry
6: about that. Uh, don't worry about the no insurance, you know, because I'm looking yeah. at about probably what, four or five, $600,000 with mm-hmm. the remodel work that i didn't share anyway. Yeah. So it's all good. It's yeah. all the insurance covered. It's really fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine.
4: No problem. So <laughs> Sherry would later claim that the fire was a turning point for Richie and the Elan School. They purchased a new permanent location in Poland Spring, Maine, with seven large buildings that would each act as separate communities within the increasingly complex society Joe Ritchie was building. Now, at this point, I haven't given a lot of detail about what happened at Elan, because we don't really know about the early 70s all that much. It seems fair to say that early on, there was little to differentiate Elan from other programs based off of Synanon and Daytop. They practiced the game, which tended to be regularly scheduled therapy sessions. Uh, And yeah, the idea, like, so, it, it seems like they're kind of doing the same thing, 71, 72, 73. At some point, though, it starts to change. And it changes in part because Elan is very centralized from the beginning. There's this strict hierarchy, these different jobs everybody has, and you move up or down if your behavior is bad. That mm-hmm. seems to be kind of everything else is spawned from this idea. So, one of the first things that Joe develops that's different from what other facilities has done is he takes the game and he tra- changes it into something different. So, the game two or three times a week in these other communities everyone sits down to play the game right Um, and that's the way the game works. Joe Mm -hmm. replaces it with something called a general meeting. Um, and rather than being a regular scheduled part of the week, a general meeting was unpredictable. Instead of it being a thing everyone does together, it's often an unpleasant thing, but everyone does it together. A general meeting is something that's done to you. If your behavior is bad, Joe or one of the other supervisors will call the general fucking meeting against you and... It's usually done because like Joe or a supervisor decides this person has done something bad. So in the game, every individual pretty much is going to get called out for some sort of bad behavior. Right. You go around the circle and everybody spends some time getting, you know, shit talked basically. Mm -hmm. Right. A general meeting isn't like that. Only one person is getting yelled at and they're getting yelled at by
6: everybody. Wow. (laughs) So, So it's just like, all right. Yeah. Uh, feeding frenzy. Here we go. Yeah, Just for this person. Go.
4: Yeah. Um, the frame, the, the term that we used for this was get your feelings off, right? So everyone's called and like, wow. get your feelings off on him. Get your, like, how has he hurt you? Basically, how is his behavior? His, he fucked up with this thing. Like, how did it affect you negatively? Um, and obviously you can't not say something. I found one recording of audio that is purported to have been recorded secretly during the late 1990s of a general meeting at a law school. And a graduates have said some people argue that maybe this was staged but either way they say this is accurate to how it sounds so here is a general meeting at the Elan School bitch goddamn me, cheap
3: ass, you will respect me no that bring a You fucking
4: So the game is it's kind of debatable as to how therapeutically useful it was a lot of criticisms of the game this is just abuse (laughs) like I mean the game was pretty abusive in a lot of cases but like this is just pure abuse like just straight
6: screaming yeah yeah you can uh,
4: argue even though there's abusive elements to the game going around in a circle everybody like there's elements of that that could be helpful this is just (laughs) this is just abuse yeah
6: it's just a screaming meat grinder and like Mm -hmm. also that that, what the fuck yeah person's now, inhalations too were like yeah, so labor and i'm the like this is
4: tricky. that former students will make is that you learn how to yell in a specific way unique to the elan school because of the way in which you are trained to yell at people and abuse people. There's like a specific cadence, specific kinds of terms that you use.
6: Um, you know, it's all like cults. the exhaust on yeah. a Harley Davidson, man. Yeah. You know, yeah, the you sound, can, you, you can tell when scream. it's an
4: Elan scream. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what, what former, uh, I don't know, Yikes. inmates will say, so, one of the difficulties in preparing this episode is that the system of abuse that Joe Ritchie crafted for Alon was extremely complicated. In a way, what he built over the first few years was like an engine designed to be self-perpetuating and maintaining. We don't have a good data on the order in which it all came together, um, but we do have bits and pieces of that story. One of these comes from a 1971 interview with Dr. Davidson from News & World Report in which he claimed, quote, therapeutic communities largely are run by ex-addicts who have become extremely 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 sanctimonious, like all converted heathens. They shave their patients' heads, make them wear diapers, hang degrading signs on them, things like that. In our therapeutic community, we do not do this. Our approach is to build self esteem and regard for others. Now, this is a lie. Um, at least it runs counter to what we know Alan was doing in this same period of time, but also Dr. Davidson was never there. So maybe he was just didn't know um, right. that same year. Joe Ritchie did an interview with a local TV news station where he claimed that the goal of Alan was to instill self-reliance, self-respect and a capacity for love. Quote, we tailor the program to fit the individual, not the individual to fit the program. Mm-hmm. This was also not in line with what we know was going on at Elan, uh, but it was consistent with Joe Richie's desire to market his school to the parents of rich kids. In the early years, he did a lot of direct sales to these parents, and he would even offer to fly his private plane out to them to pick kids up. He called Elan the Rolls-Royce of Adolescent Treatment Centers. So again, I mm. can't tell you how this all came together exactly, but I can tell you that by 1979, when General, when Corrections Magazine did a profile on the Elan School, uh, it had already developed a number of unsettling characteristics, including an internal secret police force. Quote, there are no clinical offices at Elan, no 50-minute see-you-next-week couch sessions. Six days and nights a week, each Elan residence is a hotbed of raw, supercharged emotion. When the house is functioning, working at therapy, the expeditors are at work, keeping a written record of negative behavior. They have a lot of status, like a secret police force, says one resident. They take attendance all the time and book incidents, like if you talk back or fight." Each book is a strange collection of names or narratives. Attention seekers, goobers, manipulators, non-relators. At 11.10 today, Diane was called out for obnoxious behavior. Incidents are collected, reviewed, and dealt with appropriately, and appropriately usually means severely. You're not dealing with your feelings at all, screams a diminutive girl to a massive boy in lawn 7. He has talked back to a coordinator. Why don't you grow some guts and brains uh, instead of just balls, you blockhead? And just as quickly as it began, the confrontation is over. Both peacefully shuffle off to work again. So you have this, you have these people keeping track of everyone writing down in a notebook every bad thing they do, so that it can be, there can be a meeting at some point in the day where you yell at this person over it, like where every single piece of behavior you do is being monitored at all times, and this is true of everybody, including the people who are giving out punishment, they're also always being monitored. So anyone if you have status you can lose it for bad behavior um, and if you don't have status you can report people who might be above you and get them in trouble like it's this whole it's an oh, so engine it, of abuse
6: yeah right and it's not necessarily like when you said internal police force I thought like they're ordaining people to be these snitches but it's just the the ecosystem operates in yeah. such that it self-polices to be able to well, gotcha each other at the generals
4: that's part of it there is uh, these, this is a position expediter is a job The ex, there's just always kids with no books, taking down what everyone does. Um, but then can you, all can you come for an expediter? Yeah. What you have, I mean, you would have meetings throughout like at, at once a day, you're going to be like called into a room with kids above you and to talk about your bad behavior. And you're mm. also generally asked if you saw anyone else doing anything. And you also right, right. They have these slips of paper that you can write down a bad behavior you saw from someone else and put it in a little, like basically like a, a note box. And it, those get read and people get punished for
6: that. Stuff like a too. snitch suggestion box. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So all
4: of this stuff, like, again, the whole goal here is to create is to make the kids lock each other down so much that no one can misbehave. That the program runs just based on all of these kids trying to either get back at each other or avoid punishment themselves. And the only way to do that is to punish other people
6: like live in some like panopticon where they always feel like they're also they can never hide either.
4: Yes, that's a huge part of it. Now, in Synodon, people who broke major rules were given haircuts, which was initially just like a dressing down, but was turned into literal haircuts, like eventually they would start shaving your head for bad behavior. At Elan, the haircuts were metaphorical, but somehow much more abusive than forcibly shaving someone bald. Haircuts were basically lesser general meetings. They could take the the form of a blast, where one person would scream at you for bad behavior, or a round robin, where a dozen people would do it, or a 21-gun salute, which involved two dozen. People berating you. These lesser reprimands were called for by kids against other kids rather than being doled out by any kind of administrator. In 1979, when Corrections magazine covered Alon, so-called experts touted this as one of the things that made Alon revolutionary. That article quoted the headmaster of a Montessori school who claimed, It works! The kids discipline themselves with haircuts. The result is that there are no discipline problems in school. It would be more accurate to say that Alon successfully transformed most discipline problems into institutionally supported abuse, because the only way to have any kind of control over your life at Alon was to play along and raised through the ranks, at which point you would be able to give haircuts or eventually call general meetings. The system was built to encourage kids to join it in order to dish out the abuse they'd had to suffer for months, and to suffer less abuse themselves. Elan punishments included signs, which listed the perpetrators' supposed sins. And again, Davidson had said, "This is one of the things that makes us different from other. We don't hang signs from people's necks. They totally did. Uh, kids were forced to make signs themselves, but the wording was created by the student students." Uh, who were punishing them and by employees of the school. I found one example online, and I'm gonna... uh, uh, Miles, you wanna read the sign that young woman is holding around her neck? Okay,
6: this is... My name is Phyllis Cohen. I behave like an emotional cripple. I consistently seek people's attention and try to get them to prove they care about me. I play games and continually usurp people's emotions in order to make myself feel special. Please confront me because if I don't change this attitude will always, uh, I don't know. It says will always something yeah, the scared, scared and lonely. And lonely. Yeah. What? The <laughs> fuck! It's pretty this bad is, shit. This so. This is someone they're like, okay, this, okay, yeah, we figured you out. You're an emotional cripple. Yeah. Who's and that? What the? F- that's not. And a you have to wear this around your neck.
4: Yeah. And this sign is massive. It's got to be what two and a half, three feet. It's by a three fucking. Feet? It's, yeah. like a it's like a science fair poster,
6: poster yeah. board. It's mm-hmm.
5: it's it's bigger than her almost. Yeah. But
6: also, like like why is it like colorful too? Like there's it's like weird. an added level of flair to it. Well,
5: she had to make it. Somebody gave wrote that down for her. I don't think it's handwriting. I think those are like cut, cut stickers or something. Or stickers I think it was or, cutouts or, or yeah. stickers. Yeah. But it's like rainbow.
6: Uh, yeah. yeah. Unnecessary flair for such an abusive sign, though. Also. Yeah. They had a lot of flair. They had
4: the whole school. One of the things you would have to do constantly is like write posters and stuff that. That they would put mm-hmm. up everywhere so there's always these posters with like batshit motivational slogans over all the oh walls it's just the worst stop place being of an the world. cripple fuck face yeah. fuck yeah. you but kinda. it's like a,
6: a rainbow yeah. and like a pot of gold yeah
4: <laughs> i kind of want one of those actually for my own office so i'm going to quote from that corrections magazine write up again miles mm-hmm. Where's your sign? Get that sign on or I will break it over your head, barks Mark, the staff member running the general meeting at 5, or at Alon 4 in Parsonfield. In Parson Alon 4 is the residence for the toughest of the tough. It is the only locked facility. For over a week now, Alon 4 has been in a tight house, all privileges suspended because of a poor house attitude. Mark zeroes in on a few offenders as 60 pairs of cold eyes look on in the cafeteria. Paulson, get up here, he screams at a 13-year-old with a tussle of brown hair. You know why you up here don't you well after this morning you're never going to not do your homework again you're going to want to be dead where is your dunce cap get him a dunce cap that will touch the ceiling he says and again they would like give these people like dunce caps as big as their bodies and stuff like they would make people wear costumes they made one kid uh dress up as jesus i think it was like a horse they like chained his feet to a ball and like dressed him up as an animal like it would get fucked up
6: um damn that, yeah, and, that's, they, and 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 you're saying this is in corrections magazine where they're like yeah look check out the work they're doing here it's actually pretty critical to be honest oh um, um, okay like okay, despite I was making being sure like the, the like, spotlight wasn't like you know like this is just a magazine for like sadistic it's not teachers as, critical
4: as it should have been maybe but it was 1979 they didn't know I don't know we'll see they could have been more critical but it's like not positive like it right, doesn't right, right. pay like, pre- right, maybe right, the fascists right. who read corrections magazine were like this sounds like, rad yes! but like right. I I thought it was a pretty
6: dark portrayal of this facility. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you just never know, like considering the audience, are yeah. like, wow, did you see that write-up? I yeah.
4: loved it. Uh, at one point, um, the article discusses encounter sessions, uh, and these are a result of one of the weird programs Joe Ritchie developed for his school over the years. In encounter sessions, students are, so students are required every day to write little, fill out slips of paper admitting their guilt, which is like every day you have to write what rules you violated during the day that you didn't get caught for, mm-hmm. and then you have to come in and talk to a group of your fellow students and a staff member about the different things that you'd done that you weren't supposed to do so fucked up confessional yeah and when I'm talking about rule breaking miles I'm not talking about like well it's horrifying actually um I'm gonna read you a brief non-comprehensive list of the different guilts and guilt is called do you have guilt right like that's the term they would use it like have you done something bad talking too loudly talking too quietly, talking to someone without authorization, talking to a non-strength while being non-strength. So eventually one of the, the this is one of the, of, they, they keep adding like different sort of rule, like different sort of classification. So it starts with like workers or ramrods. And eventually they add in strength or non-strength. So all of the low ranking Uh, Mm -hmm. students are non-strength and all of the once you reach a certain point you're strength and then there's high strength and so certain jobs only open up once you become strength or high strength when you're Mm -hmm. low strength you can't talk to anyone else who's low strength you can only talk to high strength people or listen to high strength people so you can get in trouble for listening to someone who's also low rank it's this weird there's a lot of weird shit with the system Yeah. Um, so
5: in these rules like who's who's defining like what's too quiet and what's too loud and what's too much and what's too little like what what are the is there like some kind of like ranking system no or no? no no all but subjective j- cool
4: yeah yeah uh, talking too much, not talking enough, uh, talking about subjects that are not Alan related. This is called being loose uh, sex. And this doesn't it's just right. mean talking about sex. This means looking at someone of the opposite gender. So they would make you write down and confess if you were attracted to anyone else in the school. And then if you did that, they would bring it up. They would call everyone together and say, hey, so and so thinks Susie is hot. Like, do, like Susie, you don't think he's hot, right? You think he's fucking hideous, yeah? And like, they would do that in front of
6: the whole school. Whoa. Like, you
4: have to admit that you have a crush what on someone f- so they can make fun of you about it in it's, front of it's everyone
6: else. Quite <laughs> literally, like the nightmare you have mm-hmm. as a junior high kid. Yeah, is like you can. I have yeah. a crush on it, someone. that's exactly and it. The nightmare. Is the whole school comes around yeah. and goes. Ah!
4: And they and they make the person who has a crush on you tell you that they think you're disgusting. Oh my God. Yeah, it's bad,
7: right? Fuck?
4: <laughs> yeah. um, you could get in trouble for looking at someone of the opposite sex, but you could also get in trouble for avoiding looking at someone of the opposite sex because that what? clearly means you have a crush on them. How
5: um, does that math <laughs> add up?
4: <laughs> it's so it fucking good. Um, yeah, you could get in trouble for basically anything. Uh, right. yeah, wait, it's,
5: wait, wait, wait. Looking outside?
4: Yeah, you can't be looking, looking outside. The
5: f- but you can But also the next one is looking at the floor.
4: Yeah,
6: you have to be you in like constant state of obs- observation.
4: Yeah, constant what, state of observation, always what, looking at your what, fellow inmates. Yeah.
5: Robert, what does being sideways mean? Um
6: Okay. When you sip too Uh, much lean.
5: (laughs) That's what I was thinking.
4: (laughs) I think it just basically means like not following uh, some sort of like not not being on the program. Right. Like the whole thing, the only thing you're supposed to talk about with each other is the program is like either what a disaster your life would be without it, uh, how it saved your life or like how someone else needs to do a better job of following the program. Mm. Anything else is being loose. Right. And you're not you're not supposed to be doing that shit shit um every oh day oh god There's, yeah th-
5: the rest of these are w- i think these are worse than the first couple ones you read to be honest
4: w- which ones having negative body language reacting Ooh, to man. insults slouching or yawning <laughs> looking not at the- f-
5: not falling asleep or sleeping for too long yeah like, so you can't be a person
4: no they keep you sleep deprived and they don't feed you enough because that's a great way <laughs> Wait, to have a cold work it just
5: says, break somebody it just says it just says drawing yeah you can't draw oh no.
6: my god i'd, I'd be be done. This Can't place. read books either.
5: I am. Un- what? I am. I am. Yep. Du- what? Or is right. it a
6: school? Yeah. How do you? Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Go <laughs> on. I mean, it's a fucked up we'll nightmare. We'll talk a little meal. bit about
4: the kind of school you do eventually. If you get to a high enough rank, there's a library, and you can even read books if you get to a high enough rank, oh, which right. you get wow. to by abusing your fellow students and right. maintaining this this order. Sick. So again, that's part of the like. you after a couple of months of fighting back. You're so fucking desperate to have a yeah. single like privilege that. That you feel like a person that you will destroy the people around you to get that right, thing. right, right. And yeah, yeah,
6: you just made it a gladiator ring. And yeah, exactly. For just the slightest bit of stimulation that isn't total abuse. <laughs> It's cool and good, Miles.
4: Cool and Mm. good. Everyday inmates would participate in encounter groups. These were smaller, more focused versions of the game, where three to four higher-ranked inmates would sit down with a worker or ramrod and discuss their flaws. In 1979, the author of that Corrections Magazine article claims some sessions focused on building up the self-esteem of inmates and having peers discuss their good qualities. This seems to have occurred at some periods, and I've even found former Alon students who will say that there were specific employees who were decent people. Um, Most of the accounts I found do not uh, report that building up self-esteem was as common a task for encounter groups as the opposite, which is breaking down people's self-conception of themselves. This was evident even in 1979. Quote, Encounters can run for ten minutes, they can also go on for half a day. There are other, less frequent group sessions whose purpose is to build up self-esteem rather than tear it down. Tears off tears often flow in these sessions, where residents talk about their good qualities. It is moving to watch. Tears flow in encounter sessions too. You want a knife, Bruce? You want to kill yourself? asks Alice matter-of-factly. Bruce's lower lip is quivering. Someone get me a knife. There is a rattle of a drawer, and someone hands Alice a silver blade. Here, Bruce, kill yourself. Bruce whimpers. He cannot shout as the others do. No, I don't want to change. I don't know why. I just don't want to change. His eyes redden. Alice seizes the chance to toughen this newcomer. Let me rip your stomach out for a second, okay, Bruce? You don't think anyone likes you, do you? That's because you don't think you're worth being liked. She turns to the group. How many people feel that Bruce has an insatiable desire to be loved, but won't let that be because he hates himself? Six hands grow up. If you're crying now, Bruce, you should be. If you aren't crying now, Bruce, you should be. He is. It's just, like, what the fuck? fucking yeah, mind it, game shit. Absolute
6: yeah. torture.
4: And again, Alice is just, like, another kid, right? Like, right, right, doing right. this yeah. to, like, be, yeah. Physical abuse was also, just, yeah, like, yeah.
6: yeah. That's so weird. Like, you're just sort of nurturing these same fucked up skills within everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's just becoming this, like, a petri yeah. dish of dysfunction that you're just watching all the bacteria, like, replicate and grow and... F- Yeah,
4: I mean, past a certain point, all of the staff, pretty much, are people who went to Elan as kids, because, like, they can't do anything else. Oh my (laughs) god. Um, Physical abuse was also extremely common in Elan. Uh, At its lowest levels, it involved spankings, administered by other students via ping pong paddle. Administrators and employees were not supposed to partake in corporal punishment, although whether or not they did is something that seems to have varied from person to person over time during the decades the school operated. Now, I was spanked in school And when I say students were given spankings, depending on your background, they may that may not sound too horrible. Right. Mm -hmm. At Elan, spankings were administered the way therapy was. In groups, sometimes as many as a dozen students would spank a single person, taking turns until the child's buttocks was bruised and often bleeding. I found one account from an Elan alumnus, Gregory Coleman, who actually gave this account during the murder trial of another former Alan student. At the time he gave the statement, Coleman was in maximum security prison for criminal trespassing, which might be a hint as to how well the program really worked. But that's a story for another day. And you're saying he was testifying at the murder trial of yeah, another he sure Elon was. student? He
6: sure was. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Holy shit! Now, back in the 70s, Gregory had been sent to lawn for stealing a TV. He was one of many students who participated in the mass paddling of a female student. Decades later, he could not remember what she'd done to earn the punishment. Here is how his testimony on that was described in a federal court document. She was paddled so violently with opened hands and a wooden mallet that she had to be taken to the hospital. Coleman nonchalantly testified that the assault was so horrific that she went into shock and lost the ability to retain her bowel movements.
6: Pretty bad stuff, Miles. So fucking. Uh, in the beginning, I was like, "Oh yeah, man, this dude is just a grifter, sure, insurance." Yeah. And then I'm like, "Yeah, here we go. Now we're getting to the bastard part." As I turn <laughs> yeah. away, because I can't even focus on. The, yeah, he. That's builds- just so. Uh, yeah, to ne- from the, it's like it's not enough with all the psychological shit, and now th- th- we're talking about. Creating, you know, generations of kids who probably needed actual, you know, professional help that was more centered around their humanity rather than some dude getting off on creating like the Thunderdome of abuse. Uh, Yeah, it's a lot. Hmm. (sighs) So, Miles, how are you? How are you feeling today after all this? good I'm, I'm sweating sexy yeah the, the just i'm just trying to focus on my catalytic converters i'm not gonna mm-hmm. lie right now mm-hmm. yeah that's the only you know, thing, the only thing i the got going a a catalytic
4: converter catalytic converters don't abuse kids you know mm. they would never spank a child all they do is get stolen by us in order mm-hmm. to make profit and yeah, that's beautiful i think that's beautiful miles We saw them for 15 roses on Craigslist. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, we're going to talk more about Alon School in part two, uh, including its most notorious therapy, The Ring. But (laughs) that's going to have to wait till Thursday. Oh, Miles, you
6: are not going to have a good time. Yeah, it's real bad, buddy. I don't. I hate these fucking like WWE event names. They're mm-hmm. like you know it's a haircut, creepy, right? the ring, a general like, yeah, like. Okay, well it's
4: all right. If it helps, it's a lot worse than the WWE.
5: No. Okay.
4: Yeah. That's
5: doesn't, true. I guess
4: help, that doesn't, doesn't help
5: doesn't me. Doesn't help me. Yeah.
4: Well, that's oh, the yeah. episode,
6: Miles. You got any plugables <laughs> to plug? Uh, four twenty day fiance, you know if you mm-hmm. like uh, if you like nicey nice stuff, where I just get yeah. high and talk about trash reality TV, like ninety day fiance. Check out four twenty day fiance. Also Sophie Alexandra, somebody you have here on the time. That's my co host, so that's where we do that and daily side case, but Yeah. check out 420 day check
4: it out check out 420 day and um check out catalytic converters by just crawling up underneath a toyota prius with a mm-hmm. set of bolt cutters and just start cutting just start cutting until you get the good shit there you go cutting for gold Mm-hmm. that's how it works baby all right